Hi, I'm Seth Mosley, and we are here on the Full Circle Music Show live from Music Makers Boot Camp with a live studio audience. We wanted to do this panel with a couple friends of mine, three friends of mine, who each are in an A&R role in the industry in, one, uh, in some shape or form. Um, James Rieger is A&R at Fairtrade Records, uh, has worked on, I mean, I'm, I'm going to not even go with the credits because each of these guys' credits list is so long that you just need to Google it as far as the records that they've worked on. John Mays is uh, now head of A&R at Centricity Music and was formerly at Word and a lot of other places and uh, <laughs> Sparrow. And then uh, over on the end, another Ohioan. I don't know if you guys are, where's the Ohio crew? The Ohio crew is kind of spread around now. OH. OH. I, don't, I still don't feel that confident saying that after the other day, but yeah, it's, it's pretty brutal. Rough game. <laughs> but um, Josh Bailey is uh, head of A&R and publishing now at uh, Word Entertainment. So what I wanted to start with is literally I'm going to go through just a, a few questions and then we're going to open it up for you guys. And we've got this mic that you can walk up to and you're going to be able to ask your own questions for them to answer. First off, I'd love to just kind of hear each of your stories of... Um, how did you get to where you are? How did you move to Nashville? How did you get into the music business? We can start, we can go, whoever wants to go first, it's, it's informal. Start, start with the guy on the left, so we'll start with Josh Bailey. <laughs> I see how it works. Uh, well, hello, thank you for having me. Um, where did I start? Well, I've been in town since 2004. Uh, as, as Seth said, I'm from the great state of Ohio. I finished my degree in nothing to do with music uh, in 2004, and then moved down here quickly after that. I was gonna go to law school and pursue constitutional law and decided that uh, I wasn't cut out for that. So I decided to come down here. Music played a, obviously a, um, an integral role in my life growing up and just loved, loved everything about it. But really, honestly, I have no education in it. I, barely played anything. I kind of played things along the years, in my developmental years, but I, I really uh, didn't play much. And, uh, but knew that music was my calling and, and felt like I should come down here to Nashville. I didn't want to go to LA or New York. So came down here. Uh, my first job here was waiting tables, like most people. Uh, and then within a couple of months, um, I got a job with a guy named Tom Jackson. I don't know if any of you know Tom or not, but just Love him to death, dear friend, he's crazy, but uh, he's a live show producer. So I worked for Tom for about six months. And then I, um, I got to know uh, a couple named Rod and Susan Riley, which um, they owned a little independent record label at the time uh, that was through Sony. And Rod and Susan, for some reason, took pity on me and uh, offered me a job to help them. They were in the process of selling the record label. And so I, I got a job kind of doing odds and ends stuff with them. And then they sold their company to Word and Warner Music Group. And I came over in the sale of that. And it was then a journey of trying to figure out where do I belong at the label. So I quickly found myself being asked if I wanted to help out in A&R. So I tell people all the time I fell into A&R. I, I didn't even know what it even stood for. I kind of fell into the role and just 
kind of had a, a knack for it and, and finding talent and very relational. So just, I love that part of it. I love helping people and helping artists. And it's just been really a thrill over the last 12, 13 years being able to, uh, to be a part of what, what God has me doing. So yeah, that's my mm-hmm. short little story. Uh, I grew up in a little West Texas town called Andrews uh, in a Pentecostal church of about 60 people. And I was the only one that could really play anything in the whole congregation. So I was the music kid and so grateful today for that uh, upbringing and the way that that little church encouraged me musically. Didn't go to college, graduated high school, uh, and some guys I knew from East Texas and I started a band, worst band in music history. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. And had three years there living in Nacogdoches, Texas, if anybody knows their Texas cities. That band opened for a band that was from here in Nashville. And their bass player was leaving. They said, hey, we're auditioning bass players if you want to come. It had been about three years, and I was kind of like, I'm tired of going hungry. My dad worked in the oil field, and he could always get me a job, and I knew that. So I thought, well, that's a neat end to this chapter. I'll go do that audition. I can say I went to Nashville and had you know, a professional audition, and that'll be neat. Plus, the lead singer of that band was a girl that was the hottest girl I'd ever seen. And I, and I thought, maybe I'll see her again if I go do this audition. That was in the fall of 76, If you haven't been able to tell, I'm considerably older than these other people. I got here, I got the job, and I married the girl one year later. That was 42 years ago. No, 40 years. This year is our 40th anniversary. Yeah. So uh, that was life-changing, obviously, for me. But that's what got me to town. I played in different bands around town for a while. That eventually led to about a five-year season of just studio work, where only played on recordings, and I did some indie music production and some songwriting during that time. I worked a lot for a guy that probably no one's heard of in here named Neil Joseph, who was producing a ton of 80s uh, CCM stuff that I was playing on. And he and I had developed a closer relationship, and I was what, I don't know if this is still even a term, but session leader where I wrote the charts and contracted the players and that kind of thing for him. So we were closer than just a producer and and musician, but he took me to breakfast one morning, and this is where I'll reinforce what Josh just said about backing into things. We're at this breakfast, and he says, well, I'm taking a job. Uh, I'm not going to be producing much anymore. Uh, Word Records was in Waco still at that time, and they were moving their label office to Nashville, and they had hired Neil to run it for them. So I'm taking this job, but I'm going to need to hire an A&R person, and I think you'd be good at it. And I said, what is that? <laughs> so there is some theme here and message that a lot of you will experience that's, you know, God is so sovereign over uh, all this stuff. Some of these things, they just come to you. You do work hard for things, but also there's an old mentor of mine told me a long time ago, you live on the line of preparation until it intersects the line of opportunity. And that intersection happened for me at that breakfast, you know. He explained it to me. I'd never had a real job. I was in my late 20s at this point, and it would be, you know, regular hours and a desk and an office and corporate environment and that kind of stuff. But we just had our first child, and 
I didn't know if I'd be playing bass when I was 40, you know, probably not. Who wants a 40-year-old bass player? But uh, I took the job, and so that began an eight-year career at Word and went from there to Sparrow. I was there three years. The band that I came to town to play for was recording for a label called Benson at that time, and I got an offer to come lead Benson Records. Uh, That went up to about... 2000 when Napster changed the entire music industry and Benson got shut down and that's about the time we started conversations about centricity and what it could be might be should be is it crazy to try to do something in this environment so that's where I am now we celebrated our 10th year officially last year it's hard to tell that long of a story in a short time yeah Yeah. pretty good job so that was John Mays James Rieger So, I'm from Evansville, Indiana, if anyone knows where that is. Interesting fact about Evansville, Indiana, if you read the book Outliers, it talks about hotbeds, and in Evansville was a hotbed for theater, musical theater. It was very well funded, $100,000 musicals over the summer, and, you know, just really a hotbed uh, of resources for musical theater, and a lot of people from Evansville went on to to do uh, theater in New York and uh, in other cities, and uh, that was kind of my thing, and didn't grow up in the church, and uh, a girlfriend in high school said, you should check out Belmont, and that was just a a whim, and I came to Belmont. I thought I was going to go to Indiana University, um, and went to Belmont and felt like that was where I was supposed to go. And no scholarship, no nothing, and thought, man, this music business program, this school, this environment, this is where I want to be. And so I went and uh, came to faith uh, fall of my freshman year at Belmont. And um, a couple years later, went to a Sonic Praise, uh, if you know the band Sonic Flood, went to a Sonic Praise event, a municipal auditorium, kind of where they do the monster truck rallies. Kind of the same thing. And, uh, and it's kind of the same thing. And I'd never been in an environment, it, weirdly enough, I'd never been in an environment where I saw people worshiping like that. And they, they were just raising their hands, and it wasn't about the performances. It wasn't about the lights and the sound. It was about God and uh, these people worshiping God. And I just, I, I, know, I know where I was. I know what seat I was in. And that moment marked me. I, I knew that was what I wanted to be a part of from that moment on. You know, I never looked back, and uh, I had no idea how to get into the business. I didn't know Christian music at all. Uh, I knew um, Place in This World, uh, you know, Michael W. Smith. I knew Flood, and I knew Jesus Freak. And I was like, those are kind of all ripoffs of these secular songs, but it's another story. And so, anyways, I, I conned my way into a job with a guy named Marty Wheeler at a publishing company called Brentwood Benson Music Publishing, and I did uh, archive coordination for my first role in the music industry, gloriously titled uh, Archive Coordinator, Realistically Tape Copy. <laughs> and my job was to copy a catalog of songs, uh, 50 plus thousand songs. At the time, it was one of the largest privately owned music catalogs in the world. Started in ni- 1906. And so I'm just, my whole job all day long was to archive these songs from LPs to DATs. Uh, I don't even know if anyone knows what a DAT is, but that was my job. And then I went from DAT to CD. The interesting thing from DAT to CD is you have to do it real time, so you make sure you stop at the end of every song so it'll grab a new ID. Because if you don't do that, it could just run on for 
five or six songs and then you have to redo it. And the interesting part about that was I got to listen to an entire catalog of music that I had no context of. I learned the Rambos and I learned Iris Stampill and I learned the Cathedrals and I learned terrible Stephen Kerr Chapman early demos and Michael W. Smith demos. <laughs> I listened to thousands of songs in three years and just got an education. So it was honestly invaluable for me uh, in, in learning Christian music, not growing up in it. After that, I decided that um, I wanted to uh, go work for INO Records at the time. Now it's called Fair Trade. I really loved what a guy named Jeff Mosley, who started the company, was doing. I wanted to work there. And so an opportunity came uh, through a recommendation, and I talked to Jeff for about six months. And uh, I thought, you know, it was going to be one of those one of those scenarios where it's like, you know, your gift has arrived, Jeff Mosley, and here I am. And you know, in reality, he was very gracious, and I learned a lot in the first five years, and uh, and learned how to serve artists, and learned what A and R really is, past the artist and repertoire, what that role actually means. And I've been there 13 years now, and so I love it, love what I get to do, grateful for it, and that's yeah. kind of my story. A very quick summary: What is A and R? Just, I mean, what's your 10-second definition of that? I think there are probably four core functions that everyone would agree with this, but everybody does A&R their own way too. But in, in one respect, you're a talent scout, so you're responsible for the signings for the label. Second, you're responsible for the songs that the artists record. You spend more time on that, I think, than anything else. Third is you oversee the production of the recordings, so you have producers working for you on the budget and the timeline and the musical direction and getting that record made and finished and making it right. And then fourth is the more nebulous thing, but there's uh, uh, some sort of relationship with the artist that uh, you're not the only person at the label in relationship with them, but it kind of started with you, and, and in some ways you bear the weight of that responsibility mm. To say keep them happy wouldn't be fair, but you do sort of play roles of, of pastor, counselor, teacher, friend, father, all kinds of, of roles like that as this artist who most of the time are really young when you sign them, grow up and mature and figure out who they are in this world. The ideas of combining you know, how you make your living with art and with your faith is a messy proposition and it will change everybody who tries to do it. So you're sort of walking alongside these people as they try to navigate that and be helpful to them in that process. That'd be my four. Yeah. That's a pretty good expectation, yep. explanation. <laughs> Anything ne to add? Ne next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 would, I would just add sports metaphors. We can use them all day long, but it's a, it's a lot like a coach. I mean, you know, you, uh, you're not on the field. You're not the guy that's running the plays, but you're definitely the guy that's helping keep all the pieces together and keep the ball moving. Sometimes you're micromanaging the process, you know, through co-writes and uh, through timeline and, hey, where are the songs and what are you doing and what do you want to write about? And sometimes you leave it alone because it's working. And, you know, I think being able to see where to touch and where not to touch and when to input and when not to input from a creative level, I mean, is a real, I think, necessary part of it. And then obviously the other side, being able to speak to creatives, but also being able to speak to marketing departments and radio departments uh, that are going to take the baton. The baton, yeah. yeah. Um, Got it. Uh, from Got you it. once the record's been turned in. It's always been, even for me, I feel like working with each of you, it is interesting to see how the role of A&R functions at different labels, mm -hmm. but 
it kind of does ultimately wind up being, to me, the relationship manager. You're, you're kind of the one that the artist has to go to. It's also the one that we have to go to as producers or songwriters. So I apologize for that, <laughs> first of all. The theme of this whole panel is about what do labels look for? And I know that's a ever-changing question. It's probably a little bit of a nebulous question, but it's one that everybody here, I'm sure, is very interested to know. So mm -hmm. when you're talking about the first part of your definition of A&R being the talent scout, what is that thing that you guys are specifically looking for in your various companies right now? And especially in how it relates to you know, streaming is the new norm, yeah. touring is the big thing. I mean, what is it that you guys look for? Cash. <laughs> uh, I'll jump in. It's always a bit of a moving target, honestly. You know, there's factors that will, you know, play into it, whether it's what's happening in music, what artists and types of artistry are working and what aren't at the time. Where do you see the future of music going? You know, different types of music, instrumentation. I mean, there's, there's so many things that go into it. But ultimately for me, I'm looking for something that, that moves me, that makes me emotionally go somewhere that is unique and, and different and fresh. I'm looking for that moment, you know, where I run across a voice or a song that feels, you know, unique and moves me emotionally. So it's hard to put your finger on it. It's kind of a gut thing. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're not. But I want to work with people that stir that emotion, that walk into a room and something's different, something changes. Every artist has something different about them that I think draws you in. I often compare the, the process to a dating courting process of, you know, there's something about that person that intrigues you. Then it's a, a dance a little bit of, does this make sense? So it's a little vague, but at least that's the initial, initial part of it. It's good. I think we would agree that it's vague. But there's a whole half of it that is this gut thing. How do you describe that? You know, you can't explain what motivates you or moves you with someone. As I try to explain the other half, which is the more practical side, as hard as that is, it's some combination, I think, of, of talent, of course, that you look for, song, writing, uniqueness, which Josh mentioned. And even that is a qualified kind of uniqueness. Like, you can't be like everything else, but you need to be a little bit like everything else, you know, in order to just fit. So that's weird. And then the fourth would maybe a, a work ethic a high work ethic like the King and Country guys have almost set a new standard of mm. just guys who bring high vision and work to go along with that. That's inspiring to watch. So, you know, a combination of those four things in, in whatever makeup in that particular person. Mm -hmm. And then the whole gut, mysterious, what you feel like God's telling you to do and, and that person's story and their uniqueness and what they bring to your label that isn't already there. There's those kinds of things. But it is complex. Yeah. It's also a big stewardship, uh, sort of a weight of making those choices uh, for the people who own your label, who write your paychecks, that should feel heavy for all of us in an appropriate way. Mm -hmm. 
I totally agree with all that. I think there's a necessary arrogance to the role that whatever you like, everybody else is going to like, you know, I mean, your gut, uh, you know, and I think you do have to, to lead with that and be confident in saying, I believe in this and, and thus everybody else is going to believe in this too, you know, because I think, I think the doubting and the questioning and I don't know, is it good? And, you know, asking everybody, I think there's, uh, you can kind of exist in this no man's land place where even if other people don't believe in it, if you believe in it and see the potential in it, sometimes you need to go with that. I think a lot about, there's this guy, Ray Kroc, started McDonald's and he would do lots of interviews and they would ask him all the time, you know, you're the number one burger guy, how'd you do that? And he would answer all the time. He'd say, you guys think I'm in the burger business, but I'm really in the, in the, in the land business. I find that really funny because... Uh, in our business, I think we say it's the songs, it's the songs, it's the songs. And I really think it's the people a lot. You know, I think the people, the artists that last a long time are, are people that we, that connect with people. And, uh, you know, I think ultimately this music thing is about finding someone to go on a journey with as a fan, you know, to adopt them into your life and say, where are you taking me? Taylor Swift and Grateful Dead. And there's lots of, lots of examples of that. And, you know, I think, for me, it's it's being smitten with the person too. You know, um, do I believe where this person is going? Do I believe what this person is saying? Do I believe that other people will believe similar things about this artist? And then, if you can establish that, ideally, then it is all about the songs and uh, and the development. So yeah, that's a great answer. So. I feel like my perception, at least with the way that social media has t- kind of tipped the scales on things that are important versus not important, does that play into your perception of an artist at all in terms of if they're coming in having a massive Instagram following or a million YouTube subscribers? Does, does that even play in, into it or is it, is it not even matter? For us, certainly. Uh, I think it excites our marketing people more than it does me. Yeah. It's, it does speak to their work ethic, usually, and that's important. But it also, there can be another side of the coin, like you've spent that much time on YouTube and your songs are only this good. <laughs> you know, uh, what, what are you really valuing? So, uh, it, But it is, a, for millennials, it's such a, a cultural message that this is what's required. You've got to get this many likes and this many follows. And I'm old school enough to believe that a song will always trump that, but... Uh, it does speak to their work ethic, and that's something important. I don't know that uh, whether it's streaming or whatever the next thing will be is as important to us as it is to people who distribute and market. Yeah, I, I, I'm right there with, with John. I was going to say also at the end of the last question, I feel like it is kind of more of a, a thing now that a lot of A&R guys are looking at metrics and analytics, especially I think more in our counterparts in New York and L.A., there's a lot of guys making decisions on what what's going on trend wise. Right. I mean, um, there's there's websites yeah. that are nextbigsound.com yep. and yeah. things that are dedicated yep. to just aggregating these metrics of social media. Yeah. But I, I I'm more in line with where John's at on as far as we're making decisions. So I guess the other big question, along with it on a nuts and bolts level, is where where are you finding artists? Are you finding them on YouTube? Are you meeting them at churches? Are you going and seeing live shows? MySpace. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Good one. Um, You know, I mean, uh, people ask me that all the time, and it's recommendations. It's it's still the just, the old is still dictating the new. I mean, to even talk about 
the, all the social media, you know, it's still nuts and bolts going out and playing dates and eventually getting ads on radio stations so that all of the, the socials go up respectively. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing. Um, but as far as, uh, discovering talent, it's, Hey, uh, you know, the afters were in a city and they had an opener and that opener was very good. And they're like, hey, you should talk to that opener or a manager will bring stuff in. Or, you know, I think more in the secular world, attorneys kind of lead that process. In our world, it's, it's typically, for me, it's referrals. People that I've worked with before, artists that I've worked with before, managers that I've worked with before, producers that I've worked with before that bring, uh, bring in artists. That's typically where I intersect new artists. And people that you trust. Trust, yeah, yeah, sure. There's a book called The Producer by a guy named John Hammond who in some ways is kind of the godfather of the A&R process. He was a guy that maybe was the first guy, I think, that would go into clubs and he'd hear Billie Holiday and he'd, you know, he would just light up and then start to say, well, out of all these songs in your set, let's record these 10. That's the R part, you know, the repertoire part. And then other labels started saying, he worked for Columbia, and other labels started saying, well, we need our own John Hammond to go do that. And that was a core piece of the, that's where Talent Scout kind of came from, you know, that you went out and found things in clubs. I think there was an earlier day for me, I don't know about you guys, where you were in churches a lot, going to see people, but I don't know what if if the network just got bigger. Technology did change things. Obviously, the internet, but I don't do nearly as much of that. It just seems like it comes to us. Uh, Nancy, our intern, is here. Wave, Nancy, and another guy in our company, the guy who works with me in A and R, Matt. Matt uh, will spend more time surfing, and Nancy's brought things in before to our A and R meetings that she's found or knows from school or things like that. But like cat Cat videos, yeah, yeah. We do spend too much time looking at cat kinds of videos. <laughs> uh, but ninety uh, percent of it, at least, has got to be just people emailing you and saying you got to check this out. Have yeah. you ever signed a like a just a? I found this guy somewhere and carried it through and done it like a homeless guy. No, just <laughs> I mean, not off of a recommendation. Or a homeless guy, either one. <laughs> yeah. Not that I can think of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, either. Yeah. So never, never sign an artist that wasn't off a recommendation. I'd have to think. You know, it's been a lot of years for me. I don't. I, I'm uh, pretty positive I haven't. Yeah. Wow. You almost always at least connect with them yeah. through somebody. Some you know? relationship. Yeah. Wow. That makes a big statement. So, what is the importance for you? And I mean, you're working with artists that live in Nashville and outside of Nashville. Um, what would you say the importance is for somebody wanting to get into the industry, wanting to connect with a label? What's the importance of being in in a city like Nashville? I mean, just artist-wise, producer-wise, all of the above. All, all the. I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. you could speak to each of them. Sure. I mean, you know, I I have a bias and preference for it. You know, I would say probably half of the artists that we work with probably live here. Maybe maybe a little bit more than that just depends but and then i would say you know majority of the folks that we work with just creatively songwriters and and producers and engineers and all that kind of stuff uh, work here but i like the idea of going outside of nashville sometimes too you know and and finding some different pockets of culture and thoughts and ideas that are outside of nashville so you know i i it's sometimes more cost effective and easier 
because you're in front of people and you can connect with them easier sometimes. But for me, I, it's, it doesn't play a huge role other than probably in the, in the, in the songwriting process. You know, if they're not here, it's a little harder to have a, a little more consistency uh, in, in songwriting and meeting and developing and talking through stuff. Mm. It's, it's so much easier to, for that human inter- interaction if they're here. Yeah. And, and those, those times are usually more fruitful than a phone call or an or a, uh, email. So, um, you know, I think relationally it's still most beneficial when they're here. But, um, yeah. So for somebody wanting to be where you guys are, is, is it a necessity? Wanting to work maybe in a behind-the-scenes role in the industry, like whether it's a label or PR, marketing, anything that's not the artist or the creator. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, for an artist or a coworker, I think this would be true. Josh used that analogy. We do a lot of dating, especially on an artist's side. Who the person is is so important, right? And it works both ways. They really need to know who you are. And carry the analogy too far, you're wondering, are we going to get married? You know, because getting married, a la signing someone, is a, a serious commitment for the label in terms of what they're going to invest and for the artist and how long uh, and what the expectation is. It's serious. So you don't, you don't want to do that with people you don't trust. Character only reveals itself over time, you know. So if somebody lives in uh, Indiana, sorry, you, uh, it's just harder to date them, right? You can Skype all you because want. Because they're from Indiana. Well, yeah, who wants to date anyone from Indiana? Uh, you can Skype and call and all that, but you don't really build a relationship that way. So I would say the same thing kind of is true for, for coworkers, maybe not to the same extent, but uh, you need to know and trust the people that you're hiring. And I don't want to hire anyone that I've only done an interview with over Skype or something. You know, I want to get to know them. So I'm bigger on this than I've ever been, that living here is a big deal. Uh, for all the reasons Josh said, for what I've just said, I used to say, don't move to Nashville because it just kind of makes you one of everybody that's living in Nashville. But gosh, it's just too hard to try to do it we we all do we all have but uh it's just so much harder sure so i'll ask one more question and then we'll open it up to our amazing audience because i'm sure you guys are like bursting forth with questions for these guys (laughs) so you guys are in a sense you know mentors to your artists and the people that are working around you and you touched a little bit on this but was there a mentor for each one of you that played a role along the way that changed your life? And if so, can you talk about that a bit? John Mace. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a great industry. There's a bunch of great people. And, you know, I think the classroom is all around us in our, in our industry. We can learn from uh, people that, have, that are ahead of us. One of the people that we're working with, I think Jeff Mosley, who started the company, has been a huge impact on my life because, you know, like I said earlier, he gave me an opportunity and allowed me to grow into that opportunity and taught me along the way. And so I think he would be probably my biggest mentor in that. As a song lover and a guy that likes songs, you know, I, I'm pretty smitten uh, with the older songwriters and how they did it and how they stayed in it and how they weathered uh, failures and successes and uh, you know, those Tom Douglas stories, usually they're just perseverance stories. And, you know, I think we learn a lot about from other people saying, oh, it's hard for you too? Oh, cool. I'll keep doing this then, you know, that kind of stuff. 
I'm so glad you asked because I've got a little sermon about this uh, that might take just a sec. But in my, my story, when I told you when I came to town, that band that I came to work for was signed to a label called Benson. That was being run by the last family member that owned the label, Bob Benson. Bob was an amazing guy. Uh, he left a legacy, a lot of that catalog, and his fingerprints are on that. At the time, it was the largest label in town. He was warm. He was personal. He was the first adult, I think, I ever met that his, there was no line between his faith and his work and his family. And uh, he, he was just a very integrated man. And he was a mentor because I caught a lot from him. He would get on the bus with us and do trips with us sometimes and just so impressive of a guy. And he did invite me one time. He led a little Bible study for some young guys. And I went one time and he led communion for these musician guys that was around. It was so impactful for me. That's the reason I left a good job at Sparrow Records to go to Benson which was a failing kind of Titanic label because in my mind, this was God's full circle you know, story for me that I could go and return Benson to its glory days because I knew how Bob had kind of done things. One thing I regret in my story is that I think if I had walked up to Bob at any point and said, hey, could I go to lunch with you once a month? He would have been so happy to do that. But in my insecurity and just you know, fearfulness, I, I couldn't do it. He was the big record company president. I was a bass player. He'd never have time to do that. I'm sure he would have done that and probably would have gotten as much out of it as I would have. If you have any sense that there's that kind of person out there for you, press into it. And if they can't, if they don't have time, that's yeah. great. That said, I still caught a lot from a lot of people. And of course, a lot of reading, a lot of books, a lot of pastors that you, you could kind of say I was mentored by, but I, I really miss Bob and wish I would have spent more time with him. It's great. Yeah. I have this, obviously, I think we all can relate to this. I, I, I don't think we're meant to be on our own. You know, we're meant to have people around us. We're meant to have community. And I feel like this, the mentor thing is, is such a huge part of, I think, how any of us survive uh, what life brings our way. And so I'm a big proponent of, you know, finding people around you to, to lock arms with, whether you're an artist or you're in some other kind of business. I wouldn't be here without the people that have been in my life that have shown me favor and, and loved me and encouraged me along the way. So I think probably uh, I wouldn't be doing A&R without a lady named Susan Riley. She, uh, she's the one that gave me a chance, saw something in me. Um, so I, um, she's still a very sweet, dear friend. So Susan Riley, uh, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in without a guy named Mark Bright. He's a producer and songwriter here in town, more in the country world. He was our leader for a couple of years and I learned so much from him. He was from a little different world than the one I function in currently. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, uh, working under a producer yeah. as an A&R guy. Um, and my third one would be our, my current boss, a guy named Rod Riley, and he's just such a wonderful leader, just a, a, a kind person. Probably those three would be, would be my, my mentors over the last 15 years. So. Good. Good. Can I tell one more mentoring yeah, story? Yeah, absolutely. When I was at Word, and again, I had never been in a real corporate environment, never had a desk, real job, kind of thing like that. And you guys remember Elwin Raymer? Elwin was a, a guy probably... 10 years older than me or so. He was a publisher 
funny, good guy, and we were going to lunch once a month, and Word had gone through a sale. It had been owned by ABC, and it sold to Thomas Nelson, who was a book publisher here in town. The day that Thomas Nelson people came over, and it was a very corporate, stodgy kind of, Thomas Nelson was not like a music company, and they all had suits on, and they met with the whole staff, and I happened to have lunch with Ellen that day. So that morning they'd come in and, you know, the guys were like, hey, we've been looking at Word for a long time. We love Word. It's a good company. And you don't come in and change a good company. So we want to get you guys together and tell you we're excited and we're not here to change a bunch of things. So I'm having lunch with Ellen just a few hours later. I'm saying, well, this is, you know, it's kind of neat. This is what they came in and said. And Ellen goes, "Uh uh-oh. And I said, what? He goes, they're going to change some things. <laughs> and I said, what, what do you mean? And he, he said, well, they kind of need to come in and tell you that because they need everybody to work while they figure out what they're going to do, you know, <laughs> who they're going to let go of and, and how they're going to restructure and all that. And I'm telling you guys, about three months later, absolutely, the head started rolling. You know, the top people were laid off and they started restructuring things. And it just reminded me, you know, sometimes just a guy like that who can kind of give you a, this has been my experience, here's a little yellow flag for you. When they say that, it probably means this. <laughs> so that was a good one. Yeah, phenomenal. Well, um, let's just open up to your guys' questions because I'm, I'm sure you have them. So uh, these guys are here to answer. Again, like John said, I'm going to piggyback on his thing. Have the courage to get up and ask the question. Because they're here. These guys are here out of the uh, goodness of their heart. Yeah, so go ahead. So, you know, from your perspective, uh, how what do you... How do, what? Well... Oh, man. From your perspective, how do you get a song to be in the rotation on a radio... Okay, and I'm sure you've gotten this before, but is it the la- is it the label that can really help push that along, or do you guys have some kind of perspective on you know somebody's making the decision to get a, a song play on airplay? So that's my question. Yeah. I mean, he looked at you. Uh, I mean, he did. Uh, he, he made eye <laughs> Direct eye contact. Okay, so maybe 15 years ago, most of those decisions were made by the DJs themselves, and. Like if you listen to old uh, Casey Kasem, American Top 40 shows, which were so fun to listen to, you notice two things. One is a real variety of music and two, uh, a a really quick moving chart. Like a a song could be in the top 10, but have only been on the chart for three or four. We all remember days when we could get two or three top 10 songs out of a, a record in a year. So... Mainstream stations started hiring consultants, and consultants would come in and say, you got two things wrong. You don't know who your listener is. You need to identify who that is. And then second, you need to find out what they want and play that for them. Well, Christian music didn't really adapt that until maybe a decade ago or so, but now Christian music follows that same pattern. So they have identified who that listener is. It's a a white woman between 29 and 45-ish She's personified in the industry as Becky. I don't know if you've ever heard <laughs> who Becky is. It's worn out. But uh, so what's different about Christian music is a lot of, I would say 90% of the stations are, are what are called uh, listener-supported, right? So Becky is probably paying a monthly support check to the station. 
So it's very important for them to play what she wants to hear. So they have a couple of means of figuring that out. They'll do a lot of online research, you know, put posting songs and people will go in and kind of vote on them. When they get really serious and can spend some money, they'll bring a hundred Beckys into a, an auditorium <laughs> and they'll play sometimes a hundred snippets of songs for them. And they're literally sitting there with a dial and that dial is either being turned up or down when there's no markers on it, but it's just down or up while that snippet is going by. And of course, that's all aggregated into a computer ranked from one to five, and they would never play anything less than a four. So we're constantly talking about how songs test. I was telling some guys here last night at the dinner, it's a weird thing that what this has really worked for radio. I mean, most Christian radio is doing really well. Last reporting period in the Nielsen's, Houston KSBJ was the fifth most listened to station in Houston, the fourth largest city in America. I mean, that's giant. But what has been really good for radio has kind of been bad for music. It's what we now deal with a lot, not on every song, but on the songs that we think can be singles, is will Becky like it? Will she say it tests well? Uh, or will she test it well? And, you know, there are some definite lane lines for those kinds of songs that she likes. If you listen to K-Love, their mantra, you know, is positive and encouraging. So if it's not positive and encouraging, they're probably not going to play it. Well, you're sitting there going, there's a lot about my life as a believer that's not positive and encouraging. And in some ways, you have to say, well, you don't get to write about that stuff, at least for your radio singles. And that's incredibly limiting. Now, the, the positive side of that is the challenge of writing something for Becky that's new and fresh, and maybe it's just uh, a new way of saying the same old thing. Uh, and so we're always kind of caught in that motivation of uh, this song, yeah, it's been written about 15 times. Is there a way we could express this in a new way? And that's an artistic challenge, a creative challenge, I think. But it can be very uh, besetting to believe so strongly in an artist and a song. We experience this almost every day. And for it to go to radio and then for your radio guys to come back and say, well, it's not testing well. And they will tell you themselves, if we test it on a Monday, it can get different numbers on a Wednesday. It can get different numbers when it's cloudy. It can get different numbers in Minneapolis. It can, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a poor science, but it is the science that they use. And so I would say there's still some, at least with some of the DJs and programmers, uh, that have been around for a while, they still use their gut, even in saying, I'm not even gonna test that song. I don't think it's gonna work for us. But mostly it's going by what Becky says she likes and uh, what she likes especially are the songs that are really familiar to her. So if you listen to Caleb for a couple of days, you're gonna hear some a lot of really old songs that you've heard a lot of times and that's she wants to hear her favorite songs over and over again. That's kind of what they're bound to. So I just, Steve and I were just talking today. We found out that K-Love has, currents are like new songs, right? So on a playlist, there's, they really restrict their level of currents. And we were excited that K-Love was playing 21 currents in their playlist, which is still, you're kidding, only 21 new songs. 
Well, for this year, they've cut that down to 17 or 16, I think. So out of every song they're playing, only 16 of them do we even have a shot at getting in. And they've got a bunch of singles we do, they do, every other label that's not up here. It's horrible. <laughs> but we also, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they keep the razor blades away from us. Uh, <clears throat> but the other weird side of this is these amazing stories that come back to us from, I heard you this song on the radio and I, you know, my marriage was in a ditch and I, and I went and made it right. Or, uh, you know, the extreme one of that we occasionally hear sometimes I was considering taking my own life. I heard this song on the radio. God uses Christian radio, not just to the believing community. I mean, even outside of that, it's amazing. So we want to be there. We want to be a part of it. But how the decision gets made to play what song is really frustrating to us. I could have never answered it that well. So <laughs> I, I've, I think I learned some things. I totally uh, learned some things. The only there. thing I, I would add to it would be that Becky is changing. You know, like, so. yeah, I, I feel like, you know, a 25-year-old 10 years ago is not a 35-year-old. And that 25-year-old, that's a 35-year-old, listen to different music. So a 25-year-old, it's now a 35-year-old that would be Becky now, grew up on different kinds of music. Sure. Honestly, they grew up on hip-hop in the 90s. They grew, I mean, there's a lot of different styles that the 35-year-old 10 years ago didn't grow up on. So that's where I'm excited that I think our challenge is we have to keep pushing and finding stuff that, yes, it can kind of play ball in the what Becky is, but we have to keep growing it because... I believe we have to show people what they want to listen to. I don't want to be told what we're going to sign and what we're going to create. You know, we need to get we need to find artists we believe in that can create something that maybe Becky doesn't know she likes. So it it is a hard challenge and it doesn't really go back to that specifically your answer, but I, I do I do think it's it's an adventure and I think we are tapping on some some new stuff. We should take Becky to lunch. <laughs> Ask her all these questions. Oh, those are good answers. I will say to that end, uh, just culturally, music is always, if the left side is progressive and the right side is conservative, it's always moving from the left to the right. Stuff that was in the middle of the lane five years ago, what they wouldn't have, you know, now is kind of old sounding. And stuff that's coming on now might be in the middle in three or four years. So there is some strategic decision-making about can we land things more to the left, more aggressive, more young, heavier beats than Becky might think she likes right now. But but the wind's blowing that direction, and we hope that we can land that. But Becky likes hip-hop, so yeah. true. I, the other thing I was going to say is I think radio through you know the ages has been such a music discovery tool for most yeah. people, and that's changing. You know, I think with what's going on and how people consume music and all the different providers of how you listen to music and streaming and all these, there, there are so many new ways for people to discover music that I believe over the next five or 10 years, I think we're going to see radio isn't what it is today. So, I, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but that's my belief that I think people may not be listening to radio the same way they're listening to radio today. Middle of your console in your car yeah, it may still have a radio station, but it has a Spotify, uh, all these apps, and you have Spotify or whatever it is in there, and there's no CD player. I just think there's going to be other alternatives to just finding out about music through radio. So I think there will still be radio, but my hope 
is that it changes a little bit. And I think you're seeing even in a younger demographic that they aren't listening to radio and they aren't buying CDs and they aren't downloading music. They're finding music differently. So I think that's going to change who Becky is as that develops. So obviously, you know, you're in a room full of people willing to invest in their, in, in what they want to be their career. What advice would you have for artists who are, obviously the internet is chock full of, you know, uh, hey, sign up for this thing. Like there's Sonic Bids, there's Reverb Nation, sign up for this and, you know, submit this and you'll get this person's attention and that person's attention, which my level of discernment is that based on what you guys are saying, I ain't going to do anything. So what is your advice to artists? Like, you know, there's so much noise out there. So what's your advice to artists when it comes to things like that? You know, they're, they're, they're willing to put all this money into things, uh, you know, that I feel like are just cash grabs. But how would you respond to that? And what advice would you have for artists? Things that we can pay money for and learn are, are right valuable. Here. But He's hey, right here. <laughs> <laughs> now this is a this is a college education for a couple a couple dollars. It's not. I think relationships are key. You know, I think that's just the truth. And uh, you know, I think unfortunately this is labor. What we all do, and uh, it's hard and it's time consuming and it's process. And there's not a lot of shortcuts. Um, some people do it faster, some people do it slower, but you know, I'd, I'd say everybody that's been doing this has been doing it for a while. And they've been uh, getting better for a while, they've been developing relationships for a while, and uh, they've been walking it out for a while. And so, you know, I think that's typically the artists that we're attracted to anyways, you know, not, hey, fresh off the boat and I can sing and I love God, but you know, I've been out here hustling and I've put out a couple EPs that have failed and uh, I've gotten uh, better because I learned from those. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, learned what didn't work. Um, you know, I, I played out the out this many dates, and this is what worked, and this what didn't work, and this church had me back, and this venue had me back, and they didn't have me back. You know, those kinds of things, and it's just it's just building relationships. And you know, I mean, can some of these online things do that? Maybe they can, but you know, I think from our lips, still, it's nuts and bolts, uh, person, human interaction, developing a relationship. And you know, I don't know about I don't know about these guys, but I think most of the guys in town, if you're nice and you're kind and you connect with people in this town, they're not going to ignore you at least once, you know, at least get a coffee or have a meeting or, yeah, I can grab 15 minutes on the phone, those kinds of things. And, you know, I think, like John said, work ethic of taking an inch and, and getting a couple more inches out of it in respectful ways, trying to figure out how to learn, apply, add value, learn, apply, add value just over and over again. You didn't ask this, but I don't think there's any easy way, you know, to speed up the process. I think it's just nuts and bolts relationships building, which we all know relationships take time. What you guys all are experiencing here at this is a, a team with a track record. It doesn't matter how much it costs. That's going to be valuable, life-changing experience for you. So most of that stuff, uh, you know, anybody can go online and set up a website and say, I'm here to consult you or whatever, and all these people are going to hear your stuff. But to the extent that you, ever, you can, before you ever invest any money in that, see if you can find out who that is and, more importantly, what they've done. If there's no track record there, you know, I wouldn't invest any money in it. Because our generation is the DIY generation, we have access to distribution now via like TuneCore, advertising, Facebook. 
what would you pitch to like an independent artist who's already creating cash flow, who has a manager and a booking agent, they're making money and you go, hey, we want to sign you. And they're like, well, why? Is it because we can get international push for you? Or like, what's the benefits, I guess, is if someone's already working and proving themselves to you? I, you know, I think every scenario would be a little bit different depending on the artist and what's, what they're coming in with. But, you know, I, typically it's, it's relationships. You know, I think most labels have, have relationships with people that are beneficial to you that you may not be able to get even with some of those relationships you do have. You know, I think expertise, you know, like, it, again, it depends on where you're at uh, in the process of development. But, you know, whether it's an a expertise you know, getting connected with experts as songwriters and, and producers. I think the value comes in, in relationships. And then beyond that, you know, most labels invest a significant amount of money in trying to push, push something. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll invest hundreds of thousands of dollars on trying to break an artist. So it's, you know, there's the bank system to it as well. So... Yeah, I think all that's very true. And I think it's, uh, you know, together is better in some instances, you know, um, that artist might not be right for our label or word or centricity. But, uh, you know, my my belief is uh, that, you know, the right label can add a lot of value, um, whether it's a national presence or it's better songs or it's better connections to better writers. Um, you know, I think if everybody could do it on their own, they would. And, uh, it'd all be easy, but you know that's typically not the case. Uh, we all have our own skill sets and our expertise that we can all help add value, right? And that's the ideal. And so, you know, if you're an indie artist, you know, you may be fine making X amount of money a year and and being a regional or semi-regional artist, or even having pockets across the country. Uh, at some point. When you want to when you want to compete on more of a national level, you do typically need more more partnerships, and uh, you know I think those partnerships are going to continue to evolve and change from what they look like right now. But I still think there's going to be national partners helping independent artists along compete nationally, internationally, globally, all that kind of stuff. Here's my Evernote note for reasons for signing. <laughs> uh, what can a label do for me that I can't do for myself? This is something I've established over the years of having this argument with people. And we should say sometimes you shouldn't sign. You know, you might have a really great reason not to sign with anybody. Sure. If you have all those things you're talking about, God's done some pretty amazing things in your career and life, and maybe it's crazy for you to sign. But here's what I got. Funding. These guys mentioned this. Like, we do have money. You might have money too, but you might not want to spend it, you know, or you might want to spend it on a house or something. Physical distribution, believe it or not, we all have artists that still a fourth to a half of everything they sell is still from somebody walking in a store and buying a CD. I know that's hard to believe, but that's the case. And most artists can't get physical distribution into retail. A team, people around you that know more than you do, that can add to what you're doing through the belief they have in you. The experience, which kind of goes hand in hand, you know, people who have been in front of you and can help you make decisions about things, relationships, we said, advice and counsel, which some people might laugh at. And then uh, it's a larger platform to take something from a regional level to a national to an international level is something really hard to do on your own. What is something that as the industry changes and like 
from what I've heard from you guys, you foresee a lot of change coming. Um, what's something that we as the local artists, as the local worship leaders and stuff like that, what's something we can pray for you guys as your positions in the industry that, you know, we can empower you guys because it seems like to me, there's a lot of artists that are like, what can you offer me? And a relationship isn't one way. So what's something that we can offer you in prayer and like, you know, that we can really just bless you guys with? I'll start. I think we lean heavily on wisdom. You could pray for us to have wisdom to make good decisions. We feel an appropriate weight of responsibility for some some level of kingdom decision making. The, the, the music that goes out to most of the Christian community will come through us and the guys like us that work in A&R. None of us want to get to eternity and go, that was a stupid decision. We want to hear well done. We want to know that We've stewarded the responsibility well, and uh, that requires a lot of guidance and wisdom that none of us have enough of, so we'd always pray for that. Yeah, I mean, the, the word always comes to me is uh, discernment. It's a very hard thing to know what's the right thing to do, and I constantly ask the Lord for, for vision as well of, what do you have for me? Am I, should I keep doing this? Should I, do you want me to do something else? So I, I try to keep a, a very open-handed conversation there. And, you know, I think, I think the thing that's a struggle in any kind of career is just identity, you know, yeah. not finding your identity in what you do. So that's a constant one yeah. for me. That's good. You know, just amidst all the changes we talked about and where, where you reach people, I just pray the gospel continues to go f- forward wherever it needs to, you know. I, I don't want us to have to only, like Josh said, exist in this place where the music all sounds just like this and it's being tested and it fits in the mold. And, you know, I, I, I want to reach people that are younger than 25. I don't want to reach them when they, when they get kids and turn on the radio that way. And, you know, um, I want us to all be a part of uh, continuing the gospel forward, um, you know, even outside of the walls of the traditional CCM ministry, whatever that looks like. And, you know, whether it's worship, whether it's hip hop, whether that's rock, when rock decides to come back at some point, uh, <laughs> uh, it's going to come. It'll just be patient. It'll come back. Uh, you know, I mean, that's a, it's, it's big because, uh, you know, I, I feel like we can talk about how, uh, you know, our industry gets relegated and gets smaller or is it getting bigger? Is it getting smaller? I don't know. And, uh, you know, people left that and watching Game of Thrones now, you know, and I just uh, hopefully they're not. But, you know, that we would still play a role and these artists would still play a role in changing people's lives. Yeah, I, will, I mean, well, I know. I mean, I don't even hardly know these people yet, but we'll definitely be praying for you guys for that. But I think also there's a heavy importance in uh, what you shared about, you know, it's the stories of I could have taken my own life tonight, but I didn't. And uh, and ultimately, I think you guys in helping Christian music get promoted and out there, I mean, I think that's part of the power of your guys' relationship. So thank you from all the local artists, too. Thanks. Yeah, good. On the heels of your discussion about stewardship, as a father of a 14-year-old who wants to be an artist, and uh, (laughs) the pressure that you said that you feel about making sure that you're stewarding correctly, Mm -hmm. and as a father who may feel pressure to make sure that I'm stewarding her gift that God's given her correctly, if you were the father of a 14-year-old that wanted to be an artist other than saying, don't do it. (laughs) 
what advice would you give? Oh, man. What a great question. So we can't say don't do it? Yeah. <laughs> we eliminate that. I, I have a five and seven year old, five and seven year old daughters. So I'm avoiding this uh, question because I, I don't know if I have an answer for it. So uh, I need to think about it a little bit more. I, I'll just say, you know, I think I think most of these roads are long roads again, and it's development. And I think, you know, uh, one of the tricky tricky spots that we get into as as labels intersecting artists is is how do you develop uh, an artist uh, that you're not bound and determined to get out immediately in you know six months to a year and so how do you serve an artist that's not coming out soon i think you need to find those people wherever those relationships are whether it's a label whether it's manager uh, whether it's producer writer you know whoever that is that can help nurture that development knowing that that's probably going to be a process um, I don't believe that, uh, you know, that any of these roads are, are fast, you know, that someone comes to town and says, oh my gosh, you've got career songs and it, the sound is dialed in and you've got a fan base and you've played X number of dates and you're ready to go. It just doesn't happen anymore. And now the stakes are so much higher to not mess it up that, you know, you measure four times and cut once, uh, you know, on songs and development, production, writing and promo tours and all those things to try to hopefully make the testing happen you know that that one thing that one initial spark so i would say find people they're going to walk alongside you maybe walk ahead uh, a little bit ahead at this point and and help lead that process of development i don't know where she is at in development but typically we intersect at a development point anyways you know where there's still more work to be done so man there's so much here um so, some that we've already talked about. One is figuring out how you can trust, you know. And I know I can speak for these guys as well. Anytime you're you're feeling alienated from the process as the parent, that's a yellow flag, especially with someone who's 14. Sure. But I would say the uh, the most damaging aspect of this comes through celebrity. And faith and celebrity are just really weird things to combine, right? Mm. So, and celebrity can even, we could call that Xandria standing on a platform in front of 15 kids, and she's looking down at them, and they're looking up at her, and she's given a credit of spiritual maturity, leadership, and intelligence that she may not actually possess, only you can determine and shepherd that, right? So I would say the gate you have to guard is celebrity and knowing when she's ready for that because there's so much she can do in music before that happens. I mean, she may be incredibly gifted. I don't, I've never heard of a thing she's done, but uh, it may be God's sovereign destiny for her to be the biggest artist ever by the time she's 16. But in some ways, you're trying to figure out that path, right, and guard it for her. And at the same time, really watch that issue of celebrity, because I'm telling you, it is soul crushing. No one goes through this experience without it changing their lives for the good or the bad. No one comes out the other end the same as when they came in because of celebrity. And it takes some maturity to learn how to handle that. And I know some pretty mature 14 and 15-year-olds, but you only know that for her, right? 
So I would, one, put a lot of weight on who I trust and then put a lot of emphasis on guarding that celebrity issue as she learns to write music, perform music, record music, make relationships, go out and, and play and perform, all that stuff she can do without having to carry that weight. But if she does start to carry it, you may have to carry some of it for her and guard that without being a stage dad, you know? And that's your own messiness and, and complication. Like he said, there's really no road for this. But I will say, I think you guys would back me up on this. Check me if this isn't true, but there aren't very many good stories about young women a lot of celebrity suddenly comes to them as young teenagers. Not very many good stories there. I, I was the same for guys. I mean, not very many. I mean, just think about them, you know. It's just a, a something that it takes some maturity to handle. And most teenagers don't have that kind of maturity. So go with that sort of advice or counsel, if, if, if it's any of that, and stay on your knees as much as you can. I couldn't agree with this. What, what John just said more, I've signed... One thing that was kind of younger age, you know, middle teen, and it did fine for a few years, but quickly came to the realization that, you know, once they got into that older 18, 19, 20 year, year old age bracket, they wanted to do something different. Musically, they wanted to do something different. So I would say from a developmental standpoint, whatever she wants to do now, 14, may change when she's 15 and change when she's 16. You know, I try not to sign someone really young. Well, I, I like to have some years of experience and, and likely they're gonna have more to say too. So the, one of the latest things I signed, he was in his mid thirties. So that's, and he has a lifelong of wear and tear that he gets to talk about. So just a little encouragement that it will likely change whatever she is doing. She's going to develop and want to do something maybe different when she's 21. So having a, a sensitivity to that, I think, uh, I think is, is wise. When I was at Benson, I signed a trio of three 16-year-old girls, and uh, I killed them all. They're, they're, they're dead today. <laughs> <laughs> But I totally swore I would never work with teenagers again. It's just, it's too complicated, it's too messy, and, and even the parents sometimes are too weird. I mean, you, you just, you seem like an, that, that you would come up here and ask that question says so much good about yeah, you, so yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for your uh, I would just kind of like to know maybe some of your favorite success stories that you've had with artists, and maybe <clears throat> during the unfolding of the success, like, what was the surprise? Like, yeah. what was the, the fun part about that whole that's process? Good one. So. Uh, one for me that's pretty easy uh, is uh, worked with an artist named Laura Story. We connected, uh, obviously a manager, you know, again, connected us. And I, I decided to go see her in Atlanta. And uh, I'd never met her before. Um, she'd written Indescribable. Um, she had some stuff going on. She was in a band called Silas Bald, played upright bass. There's things. So I went down, she was serving in her church, heard a leading worship, and I met her, and I felt like the Lord said, you need to work with this person. And uh, that's really the kind of the only time that's ever happened to me, um, you know, doing this, kind of like that audible, like, I think, that, I think that's what I heard. And uh, we went to dinner, and she told me that her husband had just been diagnosed with a brain tumor, like literally right after that, 15 minutes later. And I'm like, I just heard something that doesn't line up with this. 
And, uh, and she said, you know, we just prayed about it and felt like if you would have us, that we would go forward with this. And I said, I think this is right. I think we need to do this. And so then I had to go sell my boss and tell him the whole story about the brain tumor. And so, uh, you know, he had had surgery right after that, walked a, walked a very, very hard road for nine months and didn't think we were going to get the record out, didn't think he was going to make it. All of these things that happened that were that were hard and uh, very, very hard and uh, hard to put out the record, hard to release the record. First record did fine, did okay. And some of those hardships carried over in the second record. It was hard to make another record. It took nine months and we turned this record in. And uh, the last song was this piano vocal uh, at the very last minute called Blessings. And she uh, turned the song in and was like, man, that's a great song. We should call the record Blessings. That was my uh, genius. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I love the song, but it was a piano vocal. And so, you know, those, those kind of don't fall into the, oh, that's the hit. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, uh, we put... Uh, you know, we had discussions about what was authentic to, uh, for Laura. We put the song out, and it and it took on a life of its own, and and really surprised us all. And that's my favorite story because uh, those are the best stories. You know, the ones where a guy kind of breezed through this, and you know, hopefully I was obedient. Hopefully I was obedient in hearing. Uh, the Lord say, work with Laura Story. Hopefully I was obedient in serving this artist through through all of this stuff. I know she's been obedient through this because I, I walked with her through it and, uh, and you know, reached a point through a lot of heartache and a lot of sadness uh, that God used this song for a lot of people to go, oh yeah, me too, me too. I feel that same way. And the best part that it was really kind of a surprise uh, that it took on this huge life of its own. Yeah. So that, that's that's my favorite story. This is a, a current one, but uh, the Lauren Daigle's story is kind of fun because uh, Centricity has this amazing gift of the of independent ownership. Family that owns Centricity lives in Seattle, and they have this kind of retreat home place. Seth's been up there, and uh, it's it's a few hours outside of Seattle. So we get to have retreats for indie artists every couple of years. And it's kind of turned into an A&R tool for us. We'll invite people up that are on our radar at one level or another. And it, it's small. It's only about 20 or 23 people. And because of the way the housing works, the, the you kind of have to do the same amount of guys as girls. And, uh, you know, bands are usually guys. And so you're always kind of moving those chess pieces around. Well, I'd invited a band uh, from from Baton Rouge called The Assembly, and uh, they were coming. And uh, another girl we'd invited, her mother passed away, and she had to back out, obviously. So uh, there was, on the second track of The Assembly record, there was uh, a second verse sung by this girl, and it sounded good. And and, uh, so I I called them up, hey, who's the girl singing on that track? And... and, uh, Oh, that's this girl, Lauren. She's going to LSU, and lead, we lead worship with her sometime. And honestly, I had nobody else I could think of to invite. And I, would she want to come? And so they gave me her phone number, and I talked to her and her folks. And so she ends up coming to the retreat. That's all we knew about her. Never played a show, never written a song, sang that one verse. That was all she had ever recorded. Here's where it kind of gets funny. We start usually on a Friday night. We have Saturday. And then Sunday, we all go to church together, eat lunch. And then Sunday afternoon, everybody gets up and plays a song, mainly because no, none of them know what the others really sound like, you know, and they're all getting to know each other. And So on Saturday night, 
the lead singer for the assembly, his appendix ruptures. So the closest hospital is like 70 miles. <laughs> so they rush him to the hospital, and he's out for four days in the hospital. They didn't have to do surgery on him that night. So the rest of the guys in the band are like, well, fine. You know, our, our, our one shot to play in front of a label, and we've lost our lead singer. So we're trying to come up with like, well, could, could you guys just do some worship songs, and maybe Lauren could sing with you all? Okay. So uh, they, that's exactly what they did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Lauren opened her mouth and all the jaws started dropping. So that's one sort of cool part of how we even heard Lauren in a way that we probably wouldn't have otherwise. Then secondly, after the retreat, uh, everybody is uh, kind of gathered from the staff and we'll go over everybody that was there and they were, we're going to follow up with anybody and how... And the owners, and this just says something about the kind of people they are, occasionally over the years would say, well, we just want to, would, we'd like to fund a little project or like an EP or something for so-and-so. They've done that with two or three different people. Nobody that we would sign, but they just love the person and, and want to help them, and that's kind of their heart. So we'd gone around the room. Everybody loved Lauren, sweet girl, good singer, nothing going on. I just described 5,000 people, you know. So we all were leaving the room, and, and the Lumrys said, well, you know, we just, we'd love to do something for Lauren. Could, could we just do a little, some recording on her? And in the back of my mind, I'm going, off oh, fine. You know, now more work I've got to do. I love that these people are that way, but now I've got another thing I have to do. At the time, the guy working with me was a guy named Guy Zapka, and I'm like, hey, guy, would you mind taking this on? And uh, Just bring it to town, and we'll get some songs written. And uh, Guy leaves. He goes to World Vision, and, and so it comes back to me. And uh, we it, sometimes the chemistry is just magic on things, and, and we hooked her up with a, a guy named Paul Mabry, and Paul and Lauren write this song. I don't know. I don't think Lauren was very involved in the song, but uh, How Can It Be comes in. And everything changed, you know, because this song showed up. And I don't think Lauren even really loved it that much in the beginning because it wasn't her song, and uh, she had just kind of sung on it. But uh, I love that no one in our company can really take credit for what happened with her, what's happening with her. It, it, maybe the Lumrys, you know, just but that was more just that they just loved her and, and wanted to help her because she was going back to school. And I love that 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 guy, the appendix ruptured, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and we uh, we Sitting never worked basket. with him anymore. It's like him coming to the retreat cost him his appendix, and uh, he got some good food out of it. That was about it. Can I tell one other quick story? Oh this is more on a song than, than on, on an artist, but... Last year, we have an artist named Johnny Diaz. He has a song called Breathe. We were looking for a, a single. We're going back to the Becky thing, you know. We didn't have one. He sent me a couple of songs. One of them was Breathe. I don't know if you've heard it, but uh, it, it is the anti-radio song because the, the chorus, most choruses need to blow up big, you know, and be memorable and hooky. Well, this song went backwards. Goes to breathe, just piano, just breathe. So, so my response is pretty great song, you know, probably down the middle for the audience, but clearly not a single. 
because the, the, the uh, chorus goes backwards. Okay, so fast forward, my wife, actually Diane, who's our office manager, was kind of sitting around going, I like that Breathe song. So we, we didn't have any kind of single. Well, it ended up getting single, and, and uh, at some staff meeting, uh, you know, a few months later, our radio guy's saying, you guys, this Breathe song, something crazy is going on, and it was like it broke some testing record. It was testing higher than anything or something. So I went... Right after that meeting, I went back and emailed Johnny, Tony Wood, and Jonathan Smith, were the writers, uh, and the producer, a guy named Chad Copeland, and I just said, hey guys, just getting this story about Breathe, just want to make sure you know why this song is doing so well, sheer A&R genius. <laughs> so Johnny, who is, is very slow to respond, immediately hits back, copies everybody with my email, clearly not a single. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm like, Johnny, stay on topic. Sheer A&R genius. So maybe in a way that speaks to the truth that all of us know up here, nobody knows. Right. Nobody's got this figured out, and, and what artist is going to hit, what song is going to hit, we're all just trying our best to do the best work we can, yeah, but right. nobody that's has good. it figured out any more than anybody else. It's fun to keep doing it, though. Yeah, amen. Keep yeah. trying. <laughs> no, you're fine. I, I'll, I'll do real quick just because I know we're running out of time here, and if anybody else has a question. I'll just kind of the same idea there of of almost something slipping through the cracks we had a, a band of two brothers they're called for king country they uh were pursuing kind of a mainstream thing we signed them when we had a ceo that would, came more from that world and so the idea was oh we're going to find a mainstream partner and take this there and uh we just were hitting roadblock after roadblock and did uh, uh showcases in la and new york with our mainstream partners and no one's interested the uh our ceo was let go they felt like they were just you know it's over it's done there is you know no one believes in us it's we're, what, what do we do so the record was made there wasn't really anything on there for radio and so it was kind of this pivotal point of sitting down with them and saying, there's kind of two paths here. And it's either we, you know, we kind of part ways and, and you guys, you know, go figure something else out. Or, you know, maybe we work on some more music and see where this leads and let's grow where we're planted. And so that was kind of a pivotal point in the relationship with For King Country, where they used to be called Joel and Luke. They weren't even called for King Country, and um, we made the decision on a December night that we were going to write a few more songs, one of those being Proof of Your Love, and change the name of the band and grow where we're planted. So we almost let one slip through the fingers as well. That's pretty good. As we're wrapping up, I hope that, uh, man, that was such a good point of none of us really know. I mean, we're all just walking through this together, trying to figure it out, trying to do the stuff that moves us, that we're passionate about, and that we think can move other people. So, man, thank you for the vulnerability and just the honesty. And uh, like Chance said this morning, the greatness doesn't come from ability. It comes from vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I love about all three of these guys. Having gotten to know them and do many records with them over the past few years, they're the best. Why don't we give a huge, huge hand for John Mays, James Rieger, and Josh Taylor.
Ja, yeah. det var Hi, this is Seth Mosley. You've been listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. If you haven't already done so, head over to fullcirclegoeslive.com to get on the waiting list for our upcoming Music Makers Boot Camp. Don't miss your spot. If you sign up there, you get priority access to the first tickets as soon as they become available. This show is produced by the Full Circle Music Company with editing help from Jericho Scroggins. We will see you on the next episode.